The words that I'd like to direct your attention towards this morning are found in Daniel chapter 3. Please read along with me in your Bibles. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the word to to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and all their other clothes and were cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said in his, to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, what a remarkable story. And Lord, I think in many ways it feels so remarkable, so miraculous, so astounding. It's, it's challenging in application to our lives who live in affluence and comfort and relative ease. And yet, Lord, I know that you give us your word that by it we might be fed and nourished and strengthened and prepared. And I pray that you would prepare each of us for the trials that you have appointed us for. That even when tested, that it may be said of us as it was said of these three men, that we did not choose to worship any idol or any god, but we would serve only the one true God, namely you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So for those of us who have grown up in a Christian family or grown up in the Christian church, this story is very familiar. 
It's one that's relatively uh, normally highlighted in Bible story books or in Sunday school. Um, but I think the familiarity of the Bible story can actually blind us to the author's uh, original intent. The, the point of this passage is not that we need to be courageous, although I think that is a very fair application. And it's an application, in fact, that I'll make at the end of the message. But the point of the passage is actually seen in verse 28. And maybe you recognize this as we read it. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels, his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their body. Note this. So as not to serve or worship any God except their own God. Really, this passage is all about worship. In fact, this is a story about dueling deities, namely Nebuchadnezzar and God. Nebuchadnezzar, as you know, is the most powerful man in the world at this time, leader of a, of a world empire. And he is drunk on his own magnificence. You've, I'm sure, heard the quote by Lord Acton that power corrupts. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, this is, uh, the, the truth of this quote by Lord Acton is magnified in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He is a supreme example of such corruption. And this is highlighted in a number of ways in the first part of the story, as we'll see. And it's, it's, it's important for us to recognize this, because without any check on a person's life, they too would exalt themselves in the way that Nebuchadnezzar does here. If there was no conscience or no social stigma, no, no uh, judgment, no penalty uh, for committing one sin or a multitude of sins, every person in this room, including myself, would do exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does in this passage. We flatter ourselves if we think it's our own self-will that keeps us back from adultery and from murder, from theft. The truth is that really what keeps us back from those things is a fear of the consequences, fear of the shame, fear of imprisonment, fear of um, rift in relationships, the social stigma, whatever it might be. There lurks inside each and every person descended from Adam, the spawn of Satan. I mean, people often wonder, you know, if Satan was made holy and made without sin, how could such a, a glorious and good being ever choose to rebel against God? That's a fair question, but the reality is that that shouldn't be hard for us to answer. The fact of the matter is, is because we do the same thing every day as much as we can get away with. Every sinful act and every rebellion against God really is a slap in God's face. Because what we're choosing is we're saying what we want, God, matters more than your glory, your honor, your holiness. And so we prove 
just the sinfulness of sin and every, every act of sin. And if it wasn't for natural repercussions, we would break out in all manner of evil. And this is why the consequences of sin in the world are so horrendous. Disease, divorce, death, the pain and agony and misery caused by these things are purposeful so that we might wake up to the reality of how horrible sin is. We just get so used to our sin. It's really no big deal. And sometimes even when another friend confronts us in our sin, we think, good night, brother. You're just making too big of a deal out of this. And we forget that one sin is enough to condemn us for eternity in hell. And because we're so used to it, we just go on with it, not realizing that we are committing horrendous rebellion against the Lord. We deceive ourselves into thinking that ignoring God's commands and following our own hearts will lead to joy when in fact such decisions, maybe they do lead to some momentary pleasure. But in the end, they just lead to really more destruction, more death, and more pain. And really, the the truth be told, man's greatest enemy is his own heart. And so from the outset of the story, I think it's it's really important that that we recognize that we are far more like Nebuchadnezzar, naturally speaking, than we are like these three friends. Every person, according to their nature, is a Nebuchadnezzar, a self-worshipper. But we also know that God does have His true worshipers, those whom He has set apart to serve Him, who care more about His glory than satisfying their own lusts for pleasure or for power or prestige. And really the way to tell if a person really is a worshiper of God or a worshiper of self, there's really only two kinds of people in this world, worshipers of God or worshipers of self. The way to tell what one is, is by trials, by tests where our true loyalties are really placed upon the line. That really is the point of the story. To make it very clear, what does it look like to truly worship God? It's easy to be a self-worshipper like Nebuchadnezzar and to fall in line with the worship of this world. But it will be hard to worship the one true God. It comes with consequences in this fallen world. Let's look, first of all, at uh, the test of true worshipers as these men are tested by Nebuchadnezzar. As I mentioned, Nebuchadnezzar has a God, God complex. And this is, this is seen in a number of different ways throughout uh, this passage. It's seen, obviously, in his, his demand to, for, the, for people to worship this image that he created. But it's amplified other ways. Um. For instance, just the, the, the inspiration to create this image came from the vision that he had that was given by God in the previous passage. But recall, the image that, it, that, that he saw in his vision was made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. But not this image. 
This image is made of all of gold. And in making it all gold, Nebuchadnezzar's making a point. So, God, you gave me a vision that said I, that I was just the head of gold. I'm going to create an image that's all gold because my kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. There will be no kingdom that comes after me. And all peoples, every tribe, tongue, language. Just, we've seen we've heard those words before, right? Every people group will bow down before my image. So in defiance of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar creates this statue entirely of gold, 90 feet high. It's of similar size to the Colossus at Rhodes, just for perspective. And his arrogance is demonstrated in setting up this image. There's also some mockery here. Unlike... Um, Unlike the true God who controls all things, Nebuchadnezzar has to set up his image. But there's also this um, patterning himself after God in that he sets this image up in the plains of Dura as a representation of himself. He creates an image and as people see this image of him, they should worship similarly to God who created image bearers and set them in the garden. He's playing God here. Again, he demands all of his subjects to worship. And their homage is even to be accompanied by worship music. A full orchestra. I mean, he is creating the greatest uh, worship experience that we can imagine. All this music. And I'm sure if they had lights, they use lights. It's not mentioned, though. But he's doing everything he can to promote his worship, even the very the the punishment that he warns them of. For people who choose not to worship the image seems to be a a prop of hell, a fiery furnace. If you don't worship my image, you're going into the eternal flames. He's making himself out to be God. That's the point. This is what sin does. And so we should not be naive that during the rule of the Gentiles, which is what the book of Daniel is about, if you recall the the survey of Daniel a couple weeks ago, during the rule of the Gentiles, there will be rule. And you know this from history and you will know it in the future. I believe there will be rulers who expect you to worship them. Maybe not in the same way, but in some form. And they will be shocked that you don't. And sometimes they will demand that worship at the point of a sword or a gun or a fiery furnace. Self-worshippers will want to put you through hell for not worshiping them. But God will preserve you. And this is the challenge facing Daniel's three friends. They can preserve their positions, very prestigious positions. They're elites, cultural elites in this world empire. They could preserve that, their social standing and their lives, 
by just conforming to this obnoxious <clears throat> executive order that has been presented by Nebuchadnezzar. They could um, just lie to themselves saying, well, I'll, I'll, I'll bow, but in my heart, I won't be bowing. And they could just get away with it. Life would be fine. They don't have to worry about their families or their friends or the consequences. They could even continue to witness at work because they'd still have jobs. Or they can die with a clear conscience that they remain faithful to their God. This is the test. And recognize this is no idle threat. We know it's no idle threat because that's exactly what happens to them. They get thrown in the furnace. So we need to recognize this. Their, their lives were really on the line. They, they weren't in danger of losing their girlfriends. They weren't in danger of just losing their jobs or losing their respect or a friendship. Their lives were on the line. They weren't facing prison. They were facing death. And, and death by being burned alive in a furnace. And recognize, really, this is not only a test about whether they would worship this image made by Nebuchadnezzar. Really, this was whether they would worship themselves over God. It's a test of what really has ultimate value to them. Their own lives, their own health, their own well-being, or God's honor. And every person on the plains of Dura that chose to obey this command by Nebuchadnezzar in the depths of their heart really is, was a self-worshipper. They did so because they wanted to preserve themselves. People are even willing to worship other things, other people, even they will be willing to pretend to worship the one true God if it serves their best interest. But let's not be deceived. That is still self-worship. God does not call us to worship Him so that our lives would be better. God calls us to worship Him is because He's worthy of it and we're not. And He alone is worthy of worship. But the test of true worship is seen in what a person's willing to part with. All right, this is the point of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and He said that He had, he had obeyed all the commands of the Old Testament from his youth. That is, except the one command that Jesus puts his finger on. Namely, the main one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. Jesus exposed it by saying, part with your money. And the rich young ruler went away sad. Because he loved that. That was more valuable to him than God. And often I think we just don't know we don't really know. Do we really love God more than money, more than our families, more than our reputations, more than our futures? And that's why it's a blessing that God brings trials into our life to expose the dangers of falling into idolatry or to expose the reality that, yes, you do. You really do love me more than these. And this is, this is why the martyrs testify to the fact that their hearts have been truly changed. You know, the word martyr means to witness, to, to testify. 
They testify that they love God more than anything else because they're willing to give it all. And that's why one of the most stunning verses in the Bible is Revelation 12, 11. It says they conquered him, referring to Satan and the Antichrist. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. They conquered because they love not their lives, but they loved God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. A hundred years before Martin Luther came on the scene, John Hus, Jan Hus, was condemned to die, to be burnt at the stake of the Council of Constance. And after he was imprisoned, really for months, in this putrid cell on the banks of a river where he, he just languished and nearly died from illness and other things, he was granted an opportunity to escape by the jailer, a man named Erlo, whom he had led to Christ through his witness um, in his imprisonment. This jailer became a Christian and was willing to risk his life to set us free. But when this opportunity was presented to him, this is how Hus, Hus responded. What would happen to you, old Erlo, if you would be accused of having helped me to escape? Far be it from me that I should endanger your gray head by my flight. Behold, I shall walk the path which the finger of the Lord has shown me. I would count it as a dire sin if I should go away like a thief in the night and grant my enemies a triumph at the expense of my dishonor. No, I cannot let this happen to me. What can human beings do to me if God's arm protects me? And if he does not protect me, the vengeance of my enemies would seek me out if I should flee to the remotest ocean. At my ordination, I have been bound by a solemn oath to speak the truth without regard of my person. No one shall hinder me to do this duty, nor shall I flee it cowardly and become a traitor upon myself and my doctrines. So help me, God. What good is a soldier if he runs away when his opponent approaches? And what reward deserves the watchman if he sleeps with the others? And shortly thereafter, he was burned at the stake. But instead of screaming like they expected, Huss died singing various psalms and hymns and spiritual songs until his life expired. Huss's chance of escape was also a test, not just the flames. But he demonstrated through that test that he loved his life not even unto death. He valued God's honor more. And so did these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they show this through their testimony in verses 8 through 18. We're told in verse 8 that some Chaldeans brought charges against them. This is a really vivid idiom in the, in the Aramaic. It, it says, literally, they ate the pieces of. It's an idiom for slander. And these accusers, again, were Chaldeans. This was a class of magicians and astrologers that, had a, that played a part in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And these were actually the same men that had probably been preserved by Daniel's intervention when 
he intervenes and, and says that he can interpret the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. They're still alive because of Daniel. And it's possible, though the text doesn't say this, it's possible that the reason Daniel's not included in this story is because they, know, they, they feel somewhat indebted to Daniel. But not these three friends. They, I imagine they just see these three friends as getting the positions that they, that they actually deserved. But they only got it because they were clinging to Daniel's coattails. So they didn't even deserve this position. And they especially didn't deserve it because they're not loyal to Nebuchadnezzar like they are. And so let's just point this out. If they're gone, then maybe these positions will be ours like we deserve them. So they informed Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was enraged that people in his own court would even think of defying him. And in shock at their apparent arrogance, he he questions them himself, making it very clear what the consequences are going to be if they failed to bow down and worship this idol, this image. Look at the middle of verse 15. He says, but if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? The arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar is on full display in this question. And it's this question that the, that the, three, the three friends respond to. And notice that they don't apologize. They don't grovel. Seeing that Nebuchadnezzar is serious, that he's angry, and that the furnace is right there. They can see it. They don't plead for their lives. They don't even make some stirring speech. They simply tell the king what they know to be true. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And I want to highlight this because I think it's important. Again, they simply just state the truth. I think it's easy for us to imagine that we need to have just um, elite training to prepare ourselves for such conflict. Uh, we need just more education. We need more affliction. Or it's, it's easy to imagine that we need to be, just have a speech made up in our mind when our faith is put on the, to the most severest test. But just let, let this resonate in your mind. All that you need to do when your faith is tested in the most severest ways is just simply know you just need to tell the truth. Just tell the truth. Say what you believe. You don't have to be an elite soldier. You don't have to have the eloquence of Thucydides. Um, you just need to simply tell the truth. This is a very simple statement they make. And yet, it is one of the most profound declarations in all of Scripture. One of the greatest testimonies. And so, just realize that. What you need to know to prepare yourself for such a severe test as this, just know the truth. Know what you believe and simply state it. The three men take into consideration that sometimes 
It's not the purpose of God, though, to deliver a person from martyrdom. Certainly, they declare he has the power to do whatever he wants. But they recognize maybe it's not his will. Even if God does not deliver them, this is not going to change their decision, though. They ask for no miracle. They don't even expect a miracle. Theirs is the faith that says, like Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. They trust God even with their lives. So far, we've seen them pass this test, provide their testimony. And in verses 19 through 30, we see the triumph of the true worshipers. The main point of these verses really is is to, to demonstrate the truthfulness of what they say in verses 17 and 18. Not only is God able to deliver them out of Nebuchadnezzar's hands, he is able to sustain them even in the midst of the flames, completely without harm. Despite the fact that this furnace was amplified seven times beyond its normal heat, and the fact that this is no illusion or magic trip that's performed, the men that come up to bind them themselves are killed. And these are like elite Navy SEAL-like warriors that are consumed by the flames. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with their long cloaks that are extremely flammable, their hats, all their clothes, they don't even, they come out of that not even with the smell of flame upon their clothes. They're completely preserved. This is a miraculous preservation, and it's to prove a point. There is a God who controls the movement of every atom on the face of this earth. Nothing, nothing, nothing happens outside of His control. Even the smell of smoke on one of His children. And this is precisely why the text emphasizes the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was their hair, the hair on their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor did the smell of fire even come upon them. They were clean. They were safe. And apparently the furnace was constructed in such a way that an audience could look into it and see what was going on because in astonishment, Nebuchadnezzar sees that these men are totally unscathed. But not only that, another has joined them. And this appears to be a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah's promise in Isaiah 43. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Now, we're not told the identity of this fourth man. It could have just been an angel like Michael or Gabriel, or maybe it was Christ himself. But it is interesting that there is this fourth man because God could have saved them, preserved them without him. So what's the significance? Why a fourth man? The fourth man doesn't come out of the fire like they do. He's just forgotten. So what's the point? I think you know what the point is. It's to emphasize that God is with 
His people in all of their trials. In the midst of all of Joseph's misery, Genesis 39.2 says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man and was in the house of his Egyptian master. God tells Moses the same thing in Exodus 3.12, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The same is said of Joshua. No man shall be able to stand you before all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And this promise is also extended to Paul in Acts 18. Verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And in fact, Jesus gives the same promise, the same assurance, not just to Paul and the disciples. He gives it to all his church when he gives the great commissions and says at the end of it, And lo, I will be with you always. This is a promise we can all embrace. And the glory of being a true worshiper is that we know we will always win. Because He is with us. As Paul says in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? And the point of this whole passage again is summed up in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. This is the point. God will deliver his servants who trust him, even if it means defying an executive order not to. Because they worship God alone. He will deliver his servants. Is that true though? Is it true that God will always deliver his servants? Or will he sometimes let them perish? I think Second Timothy 4 is helpful in this regard. If you'd flip there real briefly. 2 Timothy 4, verse 17. Paul writes this. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You know what happened shortly after this? Paul was beheaded. So what does Paul mean? He will deliver me from every evil deed. Well, Paul understood that death is not the end. Even death has lost its sting. God would deliver him even from death when he would be resurrected from the dead. Paul understood that just as Christ rose from the dead, all who trust in him will likewise rise from the dead too when he returns. 
all who trust in Him. If God is for us, who can be against us? In 1956, five missionaries were speared to death by Alka Indians. Among them was Nate Saint, who was the pilot of that little band of missionaries. And almost 50 years after that horrible event, his son, Steve Saint, went there to make a documentary about his father. And as he questioned some of the warriors who had, who had afterwards become Christians, who had taken part in the killing of his father, there was a remarkable testimony that they gave. All of the people there at the killing of the five missionaries testified to hearing foreigners singing in the canopy above the jungle. And they said it was like music that they hear at church. Steve Sate writes this. As a father, I have agonized over what I have thought must have been going through my dad's mind as he lay dying out in the middle of nowhere. Betrayed by the very people he and his friends had so carefully and methodically befriended. His, fa- his failure would leave Marjorie, my sweet mom, a widow. He would never teach his two little boys to fly. His little girl would never sit on daddy's lap to hear another original bedtime story. He would never again fly sick Indians to the new hospital he and Roger had been working so hard to complete. His passion for sharing the message that had set him free with people who had never heard was suddenly ended. I have imagined all these years that this must have been the pain of dad's last conscience minutes of life, minutes of life. But now I believe that I was wrong. If Dewa, Kimo, Yowe, Minkaye heard an angelic choir from the world beyond, I have no doubt that Jim, Ed, Pete, Roger, and Dad were made even more aware of their presence. They didn't die alone. I do believe now that God sent a reception committee to sing for them and to escort them into His heavenly presence. God took what five men could not keep and exchanged it for something they cannot lose. It's our turn now to make the same deal and give our lives away. End quote. So just because He promises to be with you and to protect you does not mean that He will always keep you from harm or that your life will always be spared. He will allow you to suffer if it is for your good and His glory. But He will be with you through every moment, through every tear, through every affliction. He knows it and in some sense feels it even as you do. And even if you die, just as He died, Know that also that just as He rose from the dead, you too will likewise rise when He comes again. And so with this assurance, let us, brothers and sisters, brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves so that when our faith too is tested, it can be said of us, in the words of Winston Churchill, that this was our finest hour. Let's pray.
Father, none of us look forward to trials. And frankly, nor do we want them. But we all want to pass them. And so we ask that You would prepare us by deepening our conviction in Your truth and in Your character, in Your presence. And so that when everything is on the line, we would have peace and clarity to know what to say that we might properly honor You according to what You deserve. Lord, I, I, think, I think I speak for all of us here in saying our greatest fear actually, Lord, is to dishonor You. And so we just plead, don't let that happen. Though You slay us, we trust You. Amen.